Hello, and welcome to Girls Gone Canon Read, A Song of Ice and Fire, episode 128, Catalan 11 in a Game of Thrones. I am one of your hosts, Chloe. And I am another one of your hosts, Eliana. Yes, it is lucky number 11. A lot happens this chat. This is the big time. This is the big one. And what's crazy is we already have covered this. We did a little sneak peek at some of this, right? Back back on Patreon when we did an episode on Northern Independence. Uh, who knows? Was that a year ago? Two years? Who knows? But I, I'm so excited that? to finally be back. Uh, it was 4th of July, either last year or the year before or some some bullshit. Patriotic. I don't know. I don't Whatever. remember doing this that. This is the real time. <laughs> I only remember because our good friend Jimmy Mack loved it, if I recall. Holy shit. And that's why I remember we did it. But we did a Northern Independence episode some July, and here we are again doing Northern Independence again. We're doing it live with each other. Yeah, absolutely. And so this is where it all starts. And it is a wild chapter. There's a lot of things set up and technically the whole independence part, right? That is just setting everything up for the next arc of this of this story that is ongoing. Yes. But this is it for a Game of Thrones, right? So this is our last Catalan a Game yeah. of Thrones chapter. We'll be returning next week to start up with of course a clash of kings, Acock, and I'm excited about that because Things pick up a little speed for a bit before we get real sad again. I mean, if you think about it, this is part of how you get that clash of kings, right? They make one more king here, and then there's a clash of them. And absolutely, we are barreling through these Catelyn episodes, and it is not an emotional roller coaster. It's just like, I don't know, an emotional drop the entire time. Like that that droppy tower thing, but... Only yeah, that. it doesn't stop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Only going, and, I mean, look like, at it this wow. way. We only have 14 chapters after this of Catalan. We're like almost halfway through. Wild. <sighs> insane. Insane. Well, this month for our Patreon episodes, speaking of Patreon episodes, we will not be rehashing Northern Independence to Eliana's dismay, but we will... <laughs> be doing a His Dark Materials-themed episode. We're going to be covering the short novella called The Collectors that is available via audiobook or via e-reader. So if you're a Kindle or a Barnes & Noble or whatever you like, it's not released by hard copy yet, to my knowledge. So Philip Pullman's The Collectors. It's yeah. fun. It's a fun one. Yeah, so you cannot collect that book yet, but you can collect some <laughs> knowledge as we go over it this month but some other things you could do you could collect more friends if you would like to join the girls gone canon discord also available on our patreon for patrons ten dollars and up that's the thunder tier and above once a month we do a brunch slash happy hour yes this month we're going to be having that on june 26th we're going to do uh well we, we haven't decided yet but we have some ideas tinkering around right to celebrate pride month and uh i don't know have have some good times with our friends we do a lot of th this happens monthly right we do it every month there's a bunch of get to know you sometimes we do games we are now always doing giveaways of fun fandom collectibles or art so you might win something more than friendship okay. which is the true prize but uh you yeah. might win something else too if you come so you never know collect some art Ooh, you could become an art collector and that is in theme 
with that episode. Yes, for, for the collectors. Wow. 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 We pulled it <laughs> round circle. And coming back to his dark materials before we move on to some fascinating, fascinating emails or messages of note to talk about. We are starting the Amber Spyglass, the third His Dark Materials book, at the end of the month. If you are a His Dark Materials fan, tune in, keep your subscribe button nice and followed here, because we will be releasing some episodes on that soon. Yes. Very excited. Speaking of things that are just emotional drops, that's that's one of them. Sad. (laughs) (laughs) A big emotional drop at the end. Yeah, if we're like real sad by the end of 2021, this is why. If we are big sad. Yep, a lot of people are asking me, how are you combating this? I'm like vitamin D, uh, therapy, you know, these are the ways I deal with this podcast. Oh, I just, I don't know if I do combat it. I just embrace it and and then I'm big sad. (laughs) Well, (sighs) other things to be big sad about. There's some emotional stuff going on in our emails and tweets of note. But this time it's actually an email and Podbean comment of note this week. Our good friend Clint, whom you all may remember from our episode at the Vale, has some words about mourning Vardis Egan. So Clint has pointed out it has actually been a month since we all last spoke. On Catelyn's seventh, A Game of Thrones chapter, things were so innocent then, before Vardis Egan died. Life hasn't been the same since. The nights are colder, the stars dimmer, and even <laughs> blackberries and cream don't taste quite as sweet. I think about Sir Vardis every day. I know you do too. He tried. Clint's making a lot of assumptions <laughs> about me <laughs> right now. <laughs> well... Clint continues about how he has been listening to our Whispering Woodisode that I, I, I'm sure many of you listened to last week and says, needed to write to respond to Robin's question about whether Catelyn Stark looks at things through a legalist lens. The answer is absolutely yes. As Mary and I like to say on Learned Hands, all the Starks are lawyers and Catelyn is perhaps the second best. The best is John. You can and will see so much evidence of this throughout the rest of her arc. My favorite example of this is A Storm of Swords, Cat 5, aka The Rob's Will chapter, where Cat and Rob take turns trying to lawyer the fuck out of each other technical term over succession it might even be the most lawyerly chapter in a song of ice and fire <laughs> regardless robin's catch that catelyn correctly suspected jamie had chucked bran out a window because her legalist brain zeroed in on the most famous oathbreaker in the realm was not one that i'd considered previously and is a fantastic point kudos to them i am also very much looking forward to your discussion of the next cat chapter that's this one everyone this is the next cat chapter. Um, another one of yes. my favorites. That chapter, sad as it is, serves as the basis for the Northern independence and the severing of the Lockean social contract between the North and the Iron Throne. Forever and ever, amen. Why shouldn't we you rule? Say hallelujah our- here. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Yes, hallelujah, sisters. God. Hallelujah. <laughs> <laughs> we haven't done that in a while, actually. We should bust that out again a little more. Why is, I use it all the time. I don't know where you've Do you? been. Dude, I, I don't do. even know that we it's did a Northern or Independence episode. Ugh. We really did. Go on. Why shouldn't we rule ourselves again is one of the purest distillations of the right to revolution and popular sovereignty that we get in the series, and I can't wait to hear you two dig in on it. 
Also, Clint adds, P.S. Here's a link to an essay I wrote about Northern Independence, if that's useful to you all. And then P.P.S. R.I.P. <laughs> Sir Varsh <laughs> Egan one more time. So we are going to link this essay for you all. Oh, yeah. I- I've read this essay. And look, I don't want to blow any smoke up, Clint, but it, it is a good <laughs> essay. I did appreciate the very romantic email back to us of how he's been thinking of us on his lonely, you know, what what was it, Monday, Tuesday night, whenever we recorded. It's been lonely Tuesday night since. I know, Clint, I know. I'm just kidding. I have Eliana He made a lot of Tuesday. assumptions about me. <laughs> <laughs> Look, this essay is good, though. Uh, you guys have to read it. It's, it's fun. Clint breaks down types of social contracts in Westeros as well as out of Westeros, and Three different theorists in social contracts, ascribing them to characters like Thomas Hobbes to Euron, John Locke to Rob, and Jean-Jacques Rousseau to the Brotherhood Without Banners, which was like, that one blew my mind a little bit. He explains it really well. I'll let you all at home take time to read it, and I won't spoil it yet for you, but I do want to specifically talk what he says about John Locke. I loved this. Locke believed that while the state of nature was not inherently bad, a civil government designed to protect the life liberty, and property of its citizens was preferable. The civil government would begin with familial bonds, a level one social contract, but would eventually progress to a structured system to protect those rights, but also who could be replaced or overthrown if they failed to do so or otherwise became tyrannical, a more formalized level two social contract. Locke also championed a significant legislative power, example given, parliament, that was separate from the executive power of the king. Uh, I I love just the expansion of Locke, expanding government, right, to be for people, not just for the the ruling family with a drop of dragon blood, as we're going to talk about in this this chapter a lot, I'm sure. And it's a great essay. Go read it. Clint talks about it better. I don't know why we didn't have him come on for this episode. What what were we thinking? Uh, Clint gone canon. Well, we brought him on for the Tyrion trial, but also, I mean, clearly he has a lot of feelings about Servardus Egan. So that's part of it. <laughs> it was too. important. That was important. No, you're right. You're right. Yes. And yeah, I'm excited to read that essay. And Clint just has a lot of great thoughts in general, both on Learned Hands and the Laws of Ice and Fire blog. So as Chloe said, check that out. I will be too. And I love that Robin and, and Clint are using our emails to communicate with one another. I feel like a raven. Wow. Should we... Maybe we should, like, join them together. The next step of fan mail is being like, have you met? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, do we, like, besides, like, the Discord, do we offer a matchmaking service? I don't know. Um, I don't know. Do you love Servardus Egan? You're gonna love Clint. If you like Servardus Egan and talking about legalistic stuff. Anyways, um, speaking of songs, we got this comment on Podbean from... Montelius, who asked regarding the previous episode, this tickles me, is Gimme 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 a reference to the ABBA song with A Man After Midnight being foreshadowing for Catelyn slash Jamie Shippers? Oh, interesting. (laughs) I I do think there are lyrics that correspond with this. Part of me wanted to say it was Jamie and Illyn in a Mm. way, though, these lyrics. I like that one, too. But it could also be... I like both of them, you know? I mean, they they both have one weak player in both of these, but we don't have to talk about him. 
Uh, the lyrics from Abba, if you will, Eliana, are, Here's not a soul out there, no one to hear my prayer. Gimme, gimme, gimme a man after midnight. Won't somebody help me chase the shadows away? Take me through to the darkness, to the break oh. of the day? I mean, I don't know. Maybe it is. Maybe it is the Catalan and Jamie. Catalan and Jamie shippers, since I know uh, you're out there. Have we figured out what we're calling that one? Is that Jat? Jatalan? Jat. <laughs> Um, I don't know. It, when a, someone on the Discord, who was it? Was it Bika who suggested it was actually Rob me and not Rami Rob or something? Me. <laughs> For I, I'm sorry if I'm sorry if I'm remembering the wrong person, dear friends. Um. Yeah, for ship names. They're so all beautiful. Jat- They're great ship Jat- names. That is, is an option. Jadalyn. Jamelin. Maybe Jamie this Land. is Jadalyn. Jatelyn. Jatelyn. We'll think about it, but Wait. yeah, there's a we have chaotic shipping on this podcast. No, I think it's only right. I think it's only oh, right. Yeah. I will say, when we say "gimme, gimme, gimme," I love, I love the idea that it's an ABBA reference. I, as I was telling Chloe, I feel like people who I know a couple of people who are into ABBA and like they seem like they're having so much fun. But I, I will say, when I think "gimme, gimme," I'm not thinking ABBA. I'm thinking "gimme," like I'm thinking "gimme more," right by. Britney. Yeah, Britney. Yeah, it's Britney, bitch. Yeah. It's Catelyn, bitch. That's where we are. I do think there's that connection with the I want for both Cersei and Catelyn and this and gimme, gimme, gimme. So, I mean, that could, this could mm. be it. This is a great call out. This is a great spot by them. Mm-hmm. And we're going to come back to that, right, later on in this episode. The things that we were discussing about gimme and wanting show up towards the end of this chapter. So... But what we want now is a lightning round. Yes, let's keep it moving. Some chaos in the lightning round, and we'll start off with Daenerys 8. Daenerys approves of the Meiji's blood magic to try to save Drogo. She goes into a very dangerous labor. Arya 5. Dad, no! Bran 7. Also, Dad, no! <laughs> no! Fuck. Sounds a 6. <laughs> Honestly, a little more dead, no. Sansa, no. This, this is a, like chaotic, I said, chaotic. painful, painful. It, it is a really hard section of the book, and it doesn't get easier. Daenerys no. 9. Daenerys must, yes! Daenerys must say goodbye to Drogo. Daenerys, no! Danny, no! Tyrion, 9. Tyrion gets a new job. Tyrion, yes. Oh, okay, Tyrion, yes, yeah, suddenly. John 9. John must decide if he's a brother of the Watch or a bastard boy who wants to play at war. Mm, John, maybe. Well, that brings us to Catelyn 11. Family, duty, honor. Returning to the river doesn't feel triumphant at first. But stick around for the sword noises. <sighs> Catelyn 11. Leaving River Run with her infant son felt like a thousand years ago. They crossed the Tumblestone, taking a small boat north to Winterfell, and now her son has grown and they've returned. He's wearing plate and mail and he's seated next to his direwolf on a boat. Theon Greyjoy sits with him and Catelyn sits behind the stern. A second boat follows them with her uncle Brynden, the Great John, and Lord Karstark. They shoot down the Tumblestone and the splash and the rumbling of the waterwheel brings back childhood memories to Catelyn, punctuated with a sad smile for those memories. 
From the walls of the castle, soldiers and servants shout down to them, Catalan, Rob, Winterfell, every rampart bears a house tully flag. It's that silver leaping trout against a blue and red field. I assume you all know it. It is a stirring sight. But it does not lift her heart. Yeah. We have a line. <laughs> she wondered if indeed her heart would ever lift again. Oh, Ned. <sighs> Just that that doesn't even lift her heart to see those, especially with what she walks into, that her dad's dying too. Our dad, Ned is dead. No. Her dad's dying. This is... It's a rough chapter. This is uh, also a dad no chapter. The water. Different dad. Yeah, this is this is a di- the two dads, one no. <laughs> the water gate comes into view, and the heavy chains slowly lift the iron portcullis upward. The lower half of it is red with rust, and it drips mud on them as they pass beneath the barbed spikes. Okay, this is, is this a metaphor? This is all a metaphor here, right? The barbed spikes, mere inches above their heads. I can't help but think about Brandon Stark in that moment, right? With the Mm. barbed wires wrapped around his neck. Uh, But literally, these barbed spikes are merely inches above their heads, threatening to kill them all, just like the spikes in King's Landing as they begin this rebellion by the end of the chapter. It has that same energy of Sansa's thoughts about one false move, you know, if she just slipped, she would lose everything. And even the colors here, right, the lower half, red with rust, and it drips mud, brown, oxidized, bloody mud, right? Like, rich mud. Gross. Yes, absolutely. That's a great point. I wasn't even thinking, yes, that imagery is so clear with it. And I mean, right, the rust, iron, blood, all of it. Mm-hmm. And and even beyond the barbed spikes, right, you were talking about that. And I think it also echoes the way that the Northern Crown looks from what we've heard. So that itself yes. also being, as you were saying, not just the barbed wire around Brandon's neck, but it also being upon their heads. Yeah, to crown it's him not is a comfortable-looking crown. Yep. No. Heavy is the no. crown. Well, Catelyn contemplates how well the portcullis would stand to a ram with all that rust as they pass under walls. <laughs> the sunlight disappears under the bridge, and they emerge from the shadows as they enter the shipyard. Her brother waits on the water stair for her, surrounded by boats, large and small, and near Tully Estaki. With shaggy auburn hair and a fiery beard, he wears a battle-torn breastplate and his blue and red cloak stained by blood and smoke. Fashionista, Titus Blackwood, as, we, as we've discussed in previous episodes, in the Jamie episodes, interestingly, uh, stands with him wearing a bright yellow armor with elaborate inlaid vine and leaf patterns. His raven feather cloak is draped over his shoulders. Titus has led the sortie, saving Edmure from the Lannister camp. I love that Edmure is wearing his, like, armor, his battle armor, to go greet Catelyn. It seems like a very little brother, look at me, big sister, what I did, kind of thing. I love that about Edmure, to be honest. I'm I'm not, like... Yeah. I'm big on the Edmure, like, defense squad, as as people have called them previously. Uh, Which we'll probably get into in later chapters. We also, speaking of chapters of uh, things that we've discussed in other 
POVs talked a lot about rivers, especially in Theon's chapters, right? When we were talking about how one cannot step in the same river twice, because, you know, not the same river, not the same man, blah, 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 Heraclitus. Anyways, um, and also the crossing of <laughs> blah, blah, Rubicons. Blah, blah, blah. That's, that's actually what Heraclitus <laughs> said, believe it or not. River Run fulfills, I think, both of these rivery roles as Kat revisits, you know, the place of her girlhood, finally again at her true end of the crossroads, as we discussed a few chapters ago. She's reconciling this home that she knew, her once strong father, and how both the castle and the people have aged, especially her father. And she's changed too, right? Now she's a widow! And also bringing her teenage warrior son, who is clearly not an infant anymore. But it's also a point of no return for the North, right? Their Rubicon as the Lords decide to crown her son. Like, after that, the Sarks can't go back. They, That's it. And they will no longer abide being ruled by Lannisters. But in a literal sense, it's also very much a point of no return because Catelyn never goes back to the North. Neither does Rob, as far as we know. But, you know, things could change. Things could change for Catelyn in the Winds of Winter. You know, one day, I don't know. Tomorrow, tomorrow, when the Winds of Winter comes out. Oh my out. god. Next week, look under your chair. <laughs> Edmure commands the guards at the water stair to help bring in his guests, and they scramble to pull in the boats. Grey Wind bounds out of the ship, and one of the men lurches backward from him. It's the cutest thing ever, right? He, he abruptly like is like, what? Oh my god. And he leans back, and he's just like sitting in the water, submerged in the river. Uh, and everyone gets a little, they laugh at this. They all needed a quick laugh to kind of relieve the tension. And he gets a little sheepish. And Theon, uh, <laughs> Theon vaults over the boat and does the most, like, respectful MILF movement. And he lifts Catelyn out of the boat by her waist onto the dry steps. I was like, okay, Theon, getting a I little know. handsy there with Lady Stark now that she's, you know, a widow. Holy shit. Yeah. You're just, you're just, okay. You presumed? She's only 32. She's definitely a MILF, you know, which which allegedly may or may not be a slur now. Oh, well, allegedly, the it's it's a mother that Theon would like to fuck. Would you like me to do that as an acronym instead? Anyways, so he, he lifts her out of the boat, and there's actually a, such a sweet moment with Edmure embracing her and calling her his sweet sister, which, oddly, usually when we hear sweet sister, it's what Tyrion about Cersei but here we're hearing it from Edmure about Catelyn. She thinks that his mouth was made for smiles, but he doesn't smile right now. His neck is bandaged, and he looks worn and tired from battle and strain. Yo, Edmure tried hard. He tried so hard. Also, speaking of, like, you know, earlier they mentioned Edmure's appearance. And I, I like Tobias Menzies, right? I think he's a fantastic actor. I don't think the show knew what to do with him. So they <laughs> did a really bad job writing for him. But anyways, when yeah. we talk about people who do not look like their book characters, I'm going to just say, like, Tobias Menzies does not look like Edmure Tully. You're not incorrect. He does not. It's really cute, though. It's like there is absolutely no direction for his character in the show. And let's, to be fair, like, only a couple He's of the starts are kind of accurate in their looks, right? Like, That's true. Jod and Arya work out fine, uh, but... Then you have Rob had more brunette hair, and Bran had dark, dark brown hair, and Rickon had brownish hair, so whatever. Shireen was blonde, which, yeah, as you said. Wait, wasn't the seed strong? (laughs) Should have had black hair, yeah. Interesting, interesting. It's It's a whole plot point that we're going to discuss, you know, that comes up in this chapter, but whatevs. 
Um, yeah, it's cute though because Edmir is literally just like a decade older Rob, stockier with like craft beer belly. You know what I mean? Like just just a few too many stouts or like wheat ales or IPAs or whatever the kids are drinking. Yeah, uh, deaf Uncle Bod. It, yeah, he's he's got Uncle Bod. Yes, he totally has Uncle Bod, and I'm living for it. But he's just like. He he's made of softer things. He has a soft heart. I love that about Edmir. He just wants to keep his friends safe, and he just doesn't always have the means to do so. Yeah. Edmir tells Catelyn he shares her grief, and they want to give her vengeance against the Lannisters. But this is not uh this isn't right away her reaction, right? Catelyn says, Will that bring Ned back to me? The wound was still too fresh for softer words. She could not think about Ned now. She would not. It would not do. She had to be strong. All that will keep. I must see father. Yeah. So we're going to see this come up a few times in the chapter, but it's just so sad. In her grief, Catelyn just sort of touches on the idea of Ned remembers and then just like buries it down. Can't think about him yet. And it isn't really until her speech that I think we see Ned really talk about Ned and really talk about what this loss means to her. We'll yeah, get there later. Catelyn's speaking about that is a. It, it does seem like she makes herself bottle it up for this first, mm-hmm. you know, seventy percent of the chapter, just so she can get to the end of the chapter. Yeah, she's, she's like still kind of in the denial, denial stage. We'll get it. We'll see her in the anger stage in a second. But yes, Edmir tells her Hoster awaits in the solar. Hoster's steward steps in, explaining Hoster is bedridden, and he instructed them to bring Catelyn to him at once. Admir escorts her up the water stair across the lower bailey, where Peter and Brandon had once dueled for her favor. The sandstone walls loom above them, and they pass through a door guarded by men in fish-crest helms. Once alone, she asks Admir how their father is, and... It's not looking great. He says his pain is constant. The maesters say he won't be with them for long. And this fills Kat with a blind rage at the world, at her siblings, at the Lannisters, the maesters, at Ned, her father, the monstrous gods taking them from her. Yeah. So like I said, a second, here we are at that anger part of the grief cycle, which actually may not be a real thing, but I think a lot of people are taught Dabda, you know, denial, anger, bargaining, depression, acceptance when it comes to grief. And now she's at anger. It it does feel like she has to like, she's come home and she's the one that has to fucking clean up the bullshit mess, you know, Uh, like the sibling left to deal with the family funeral on their own and bear the brunt of it and i think cat as a especially as the elder sister she's always felt like she's had to take a certain responsibility since you know they lost their mom and she's mm-hmm. had to take that responsibility on herself and i i think that shines through the text right here like that she's just like why couldn't you guys just fucking take care of one thing just one thing one thing how are you all just failing me right now and, it, and especially because it could have meant losing her father, right? Like she's so, mm-hmm. she's so mad that like no one told her, and that's part of it, right? They wouldn't let her know, and and yeah, part of it is probably her father didn't want her to know, right? Maybe not yet, mm-hmm. and and we'll get to that in a bit. But that's why, right? She tells Andrew that they should have told her, but yeah, Hoster forbade it. 
Especially because he was worried that if his enemies knew he was weak, and Catelyn finishes yeah. with, they might attack. And we have this line, uh, this internal dialogue of, It was your doing, yours. A voice whispered inside her. If you had not taken it upon yourself to seize the dwarf. They climbed the spiral stair in silence. Ugh. There's that guilt, right, coming in. Yes. Eating her alive. Eating at her heart. Uh, and, and it's the same guilt that is going on in the neighboring Danny chapters right now, right? We talked about it a little bit last week. But there's a lot of just defiance and anger for the gods for betraying her in this way. And another line that more specifically than that really comes in here, especially with your discussion of the Rubicon, is if I look back, I'm lost. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, she She withers for just a moment on this thought that this is my fault this is my fault but then she has to let it go and keep moving because she has to be strong once more for everyone else and there's even a little something in what miri mazdor tells daenerys daenerys says to her you warned me only death could pay for life i thought you meant the horse no miri mazdor said that was a lie you told yourself you knew the price uh in a way for Catelyn in her head, that is what she's reckoning with, right? Like, you knew the price of taking Tyrion, and you did feel that it was that important, and it mm-hmm. was. I mean, I would do the goddamn same thing. Uh, but And it doesn't do to dwell on that, right, of what she already has done. And later, she actually calls for peace, which is really respectable, considering it's not going to happen. <laughs> One. Uh, two, she could save many lives if they had yeah. gone for a peace, in a way. You know, the realm... Not just their lives, not just the characters that we love and the POVs we love, but also the small folk and the people mm-hmm. that actually like live there. People like us. Uh, and even more than that, though, like there is a little bit of compensation for her, but the candle has already been more than lit. And it just doesn't really do to dwell on it for her. I, I really feel like it doesn't matter even if it was a negative thing or a positive thing to take Tyrion. It just, for her character, she has to keep moving. Yeah, I abs- I absolutely agree. Like, and I think her guilt is really interesting. And there's something that you said of of how she's taking the guilt that um reminded me a little. I've heard people like, and sometimes the faith, of the seven, very obviously, but also in the way the the way the Tullys approach the faith of the seven or or something. Who was it who said this? That feels very Catholic, right? And mm-hmm. and you were saying something about her taking it as like, oh, it's my fault. That reminds me of those lines of through my fault, through my fault, through my most grievous fault, which is what they say now because um, they switched up the mass on me. And like what you were mm-hmm. supposed to say, they like train you like for a bunch of years and then they switch it up for like what? Shits and giggles? It's horrible. And then I'm it's like, horrible. <gasps> happens to me once or twice a year. Exactly. And I'm like, yo, what the fuck? I thought I had this down, right? How can you switch this on me when I wasn't paying attention? I guess the point is I should have been paying attention, right? But anyways, um, <laughs> coming back to Catelyn and her guilt. Uh, it, it is Catholic guilt, though. It 100% feels like Catholic guilt. The ca- As a Catholic with guilt. Yeah. Or an ex-Catholic with guilt. The, it's, it's Catholic guilt. The Catholic guilt. Oh my fucking The Catholic guilt. Alright, um, there are people, right, who would definitely argue, as we've discussed before, that cat taking Tyrion is what sets off the fighting in the war, and I, I personally think that some sort of war would have happened anyway eventually because they were all primed by Littlefinger and Varys. They really, really wanted that to happen. And Ned dying was Littlefinger's goal, I think, one way or the other. And technically, it, he was supposed to be sent to the wall, right? But Joffrey yeah. also fucked shit up. Anyways, 
Regarding that guilt, you know, Kat thinking about this and nudging the idea that she might be guilty also kind of feels like a way to deal with that grief that we were talking about. That in this situation, there's so much that's out of her control, right? She lost her husband. Her son is at this crazy war. She's just found out after coming home and not seeing him for years that her father is dying. And so by putting herself at fault for Tyrion and the war, there's there's almost an aspect of like she's giving herself this sort of feeling of being in control, right? By saying that it was her fault, something that she could have changed in in what happened even if it means hurting herself and it isn't true and yeah you know coming back to what you're saying of how that ties into danny's chapters like it it really ties well with as you said like the earlier one that we read at the beginning of that lightning round and also the next one right it feels really pointed that they're right next to one another and the moments that you pointed out here right from from danny's chapters their lines as Danny realizes that Drogo is never returning to her, that her husband is not the strong man that she remembers, her beloved protector is gone. And these are the same emotions that Catelyn is going through uh, when she sees her father so changed from the warrior she waited for. And like the way that Drogo is described and the way that Hoster are described are like that they both like to sit in the sun and watch it, right? It- it's very similar. Yeah, that's a great connection like even the language of their ends Mm -hmm. are so similar Mm -hmm. and i think this chapter is very pointed that like i i didn't realize how much hoster was a huge anchor in it Uh as we're going to kind of talk about Uh, i just didn't realize how much of an anchor he was the first few times i read it and here i mean it feels more about Hoster's upcoming death than it does Ned's half the time, you know, because oh. she's actually living this in this moment. Yeah. It feels like she's got Hoster there so she doesn't have to feel the pain, right? To kind of push back the yes. pain of losing her beloved husband. Now she can dedicate all of her pain and issues into this and project it into that. Yeah. And deal with it all later she's compartmentalizing yeah keeping busy so that she doesn't have to feel it (laughs) that's healthy keeping busy (laughs) (sighs) well god well okay um meanwhile in the compartmentalizing they climb up to hoster's solar and edmir says hoster likes to sit in the sun watch the rivers He had always been a broad, tall man, kind of portly as he grew, but now he didn't look so robust. He looked shrunken and sagging. When Cat last saw him, his beard was brown, right? His hair was brown, and it was just streaked with gray, but now it's white as snow. Oh. Ha, yeah. A snow, Ned. No! Oh, oh, Ned. Oh. Oh, no, what have I done? Hoster recognizes Edmir's voice and realizes it's Catelyn, murmuring, My little cat, and I watched for you. Edmir leaves them to talk. Okay, when I read that line, especially like coming off the back of like last week's chapter, and how this is like capping oh. off Kat's storyline, I cried, alright? I don't usually, un- unlike Chloe, I don't cry like as often when reading these chapters. And- what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> what the fuck? 
Wow, way to project your issues onto me. It's because you were being a wimp. Oh my god. I'm like, if I distract them, if I if I want to Chloe crying, no one will notice that I was crying. Being attacked. Oh, you are being attacked. For feeling. Oh, betrayal. This is sad. Yeah, this is with is. with Ned's death and ugh. and it and like afterwards with the, the I watched for you and we know how she would say it and like and then he says it to her and then ugh it just hurts so much the echo the echo and the that repetition from the last chapter to this one stands out so much in our reread. What hurts so much, Eliana? All your babes. <laughs> oh, God, sorry. I'm sorry. I'm tearing up now. Is this how you feel? <laughs> 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 wow. Oh, I'm attacking her constantly. <laughs> Just keep remembering, Eliana. She dies <sighs> thinking that all of her children are dead and lost to her. Uh, well, actually, most of them are alive, to be honest, which is so funny to me. I'm like, damn, they didn't even get out of this that bad. All the Lannisters are dying, you know? Yeah. She, she actually, <laughs> you know, she only lost one kid, right? Only the eldest, right in front of her. And you know what? I mean, that's what the firstborns are for, right? Me and you know. Actually, that's, yeah, that's what I heard. And that's why my parents were so strict, besides all the other cultural stuff. That's why they were so strict. They're like, if we fuck this one up. Yep. <laughs> uh, well, it is uh, back to the depressing, horrible, sad shit. <laughs> uh, Hoster... I, I know there's been a lot of speculation about what is up with Hoster's ailment. He tells her he has crabs in his belly. They're always pinching. And Maester Vyman gives him dream wine and milk of the poppy. Uh, but he had wanted to stay awake to see her. He confesses when the Lannisters had Edmure. He was afraid he'd die without seeing any of them again. <laughs> oh my god. It's like kill- awful. It's killing me. Um, yeah, I don't know what the no, speculation is. Him. I don't know what it's. Uh, he has crabs. Stomach in his cancer. Be- he has crabs in his belly. All right, there are little crabs in yeah. his belly. What do people want? I wish. I wish it was as cute as that, but unfortunately, I think it's. Uh, a, a lot of people think it's alluding to stomach cancer. No, I agree. But cancer. But I like. I, it probably is, but it's, or it's, it's sad crabs. because. Or it's crabs. You know, it's such a bummer and. Yeah, a lot of people speculate it's stomach cancer or something similar, and that would make sense with the pain. Little uh, lobsters. Bring in the lobsters. Bring in the dancing lobsters. Oh god, I'm so sorry. <laughs> what are we doing? This is this, We're dealing with our grief right now. This is us. Uh... <sighs> we're dealing with the grief. Yeah. Catalin tells Hoster she's here with her son, Rob. He remembers Rob had his eyes in... <laughs> Then she's like, also, I brought you Jamie Lannister. And I'm like, maybe that one's more for you, Catalan. There's something really poignant about this chapter starting with Kat with Rob as an infant in her head, right? Of the the last time she was here was with Rob in her arms. And it's so poignant that she has spent her whole last 15 years worrying about being northern enough. But yet here her son is coming to her childhood home looking like a young Hoster Tully, come again, walking the ramparts, right? Cheering the people on that cheer him. And he, he's accepted almost immediately as these people's ruler. We're going to have a great big fat exploration of some of the misdeeds Hoster does as a father, and maybe even as a lord. But historically, it's interesting. He's not like a bad lord. He's just not like a standout lord, right? His history in the Riverlands he fought in the War of the Nine Penny Kings before he was lord, when his brother was still the lord, and then his brother died, leaving him a lord. 
uh, kind of similar to Ned in that aspect, right? And the biggest events for him besides that was when the Vale, the North, and the Riverlands joined together with the Stormlands to fight tyranny from the throne. Mm -hmm. So he's not, I don't know that I'd say lackluster, it's just Hoster never really had a chance to flex his hand at improving the Riverlands. And it does seem he's fallen back on depression and acedia right after Minissa died. Um, and after he, you know, sold off his daughters. Uh, <laughs> and I don't know. I just like, it, it's hard, right? It's hard to balance. But but here we are with kind of an improved version, right? With Rob, auburn haired, blue eyed. He's transformed into a man with a jawbone suddenly jutting out and fucking chin hair and shit. And uh, he's going to join the Riverlands in the north once more. Having him come here in the face of Edmir's loss, even, that was very great timing. The Riverlands needed something to cheer. Hoster's dying. They have this big hole of power that's just like, who's going to lead us? The Riverlands have had a, a rough go of it, as you said. They need a sign of hope. Not only, you know, as Edmir been suffering losses, but throughout this whole book, right, they, they've been attacked often. Mm -hmm. The Lannisters burning their lands, etc. So we can see why they're quite upset towards the end of this chapter and Hoster what he's going through is something that we've seen in a lot of the other rulers of the seven kingdoms right while he's much older and I mean he's lived through a fucking lot he mm -hmm. it, it's reminiscent of what we saw going through Ned's story right but Ned tried to find a way to march forward and and was also younger and you know goes to king's landing and he's like all right i'm gonna do my fucking best it's kind of what happens with doran right doran mm -hmm. as we saw also living with that depression and as you said we have rob looking so much like hoster but i mean he's he's lost his father but he's still got a lot of this vigor right mm-hmm I mean, his war is just starting, and I think that's part of the thing, right? Rob is... Rob dies before that can settle in for him. Yeah. Because he's killed at, like, 16 years old, which is horrible. But, yeah. Yeah. Well, now that we have that happy thought, we have more happy thoughts where Catelyn tells Hoster that his brother has come, and then Hoster wistfully hopes that is Liza here too? He's hoping that his whole family, right, is here to see him go. Because he knows it's his last few moments. But of course, Catelyn has to disappoint him. And when she tells him Liza's not, not here, she watches the light disappear from his eyes. And it's painful. I mean, we know that Hoster was quite harmful to Liza, right? Like, we, we see Catelyn touch a bit on the guilt that she feels of what has happened with this war a bit ago, and we see how I feel like guilt becomes this big Tully family thing, this this burden that's passed down amongst them. Hoster's carrying the guilt of what he did to his youngest daughter, and he knows that he hurt her. And in his final hours, he's hoping for absolution. He's hoping to reunite, to heal, and, and to apologize he wants forgiveness because he knows and, and he's hoping that he can give, that he might be able to receive that gift and maybe hopefully give his daughter in a way that gift, right? Of saying, I was wrong. What I did to you was wrong. And I kind of mm -hmm. wonder if he has never apologized and now he will never get the chance. And so that cycle of pain and hurt just sort of continues in this family. There's a couple interesting parallels that you reminded me of here too of 
you know, he's being dosed with the same drugs that Sweet Robin will be dosed with, right? Uh-huh. Uh, in the eerie. His and grandson. That abs- it, yeah, and it's weird, that absence of that relation, but yet it's happening just across the uh, the old river bend. And also that the one thing he and Catelyn both can't abhor is a bastard in the family. Interesting. That is interesting. I'm not saying, like, obviously, this is a huge, like, when it comes out, it's such a huge revelation for Cat. But it is interesting that George connected those plots together in that way. That Hoster went to such great lengths to make sure there was no bastard stain on his perfect, freckled, shy daughter. And yeah, dot, dot, dot. Yeah. I mean, Catelyn never, right, really connects the dots. She's like, Tansy, what does that yeah. mean? Maybe and- she subconsciously knew. Well, she's like, did my father have his own bastard, right? And I think that's mm-hmm. something that, like, obviously, that that's an interesting anxiety on her part, considering that Cersei sort of has that revulsion finding out, finding like Shay, Tywin. yeah, in Tywin's bed. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, no one likes to think of their parents fucking. Um, I'm there, that, seeing I get, it. don't want to oh, ever talk about it. Oh, God, yeah. Um, oh, yeah. That's a, I'm so sorry, that. That's, I Thank think, the you. universal. That's universal, I think. Yep. Yep. Thank you for my loss. Yep. <laughs> I am. Eighth grade. Eighth grade. Oh, age 14. I think I remember I think you it was telling like graduation. me this story, maybe. Well, maybe they're just really happy about your graduation. Oh, my God. They're like just four more years. <laughs> well, speaking of children not in the home... Catelyn tells Hoster that Liza feels safer in the Eyrie with her son, and that Liza is very frightened, and she kisses his brow and then tells him that no, the Blackfish is still a major gay icon and has not wed a Westerosi woman. (laughs) Hoster complains that he tried to make him great matches with Bethany Redmine and says, sweet girl, pretty freckles, Bethany, yes, poor child, still waiting. She's like, dude, Bethany's not fucking waiting. (laughs) She's married. She's good. Dude, she married well. She married Lord Rowan. They got three kids. It's Gucci there, you know? And that's not that's not what he's really guilty about here, though. I think that's obvious. He's just covering up that deeper guilt about the red-headed, freckled girl, because his real guilt isn't over Bethany. It's about mm-hmm. Liza and Liza leaving with the blackfish. That's the real betrayal, because he knew. Yo, he knew. Yeah. Yeah. And... It's all it's all very sad. It's only going to get sadder in a clash of kings. <sighs> Except for for Bethany. Um I don't know. Things get tough for her, I think, for the for the red wines, but whatever. You know, well, it's all about location and she had to live there, okay? Location, location, location. Catelyn reminds him, speaking of locations, that Brynden has actually come leagues to see him, uh, let alone has also kept them safe along the way, and Hoster scoffs that he was ever a warrior, and that was the one thing he could do, Knight of the Gate. But being all tired, being angry about his brother, Hoster's like, I'm too tired for that right now, and asks her to send Brynden when he's awake again. So he's asleep before she even leaves the solar. Um, What a talent. (laughs) I want that. Dude, and as soon as she gets downstairs, the funniest shit in the world, this is some old man brother shit, because as soon as she gets downstairs, her uncle is like, ah, saw Hoster, will he see me? And she's like, well, he's pretty sick, he doesn't feel well, and 
He's too sick to fight, and Brynn's like, yeah, okay, I'm too old to believe that. When I get in there, Hoster will be chiding me about the red wine girl, even as we light his funeral pyre. Damn his bones. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And, well, at least they got that. That's one thing. That, that'll that give them energy for a bit, this little feud. And... Oh. <laughs> Catelyn, having just lived this exact interaction outright, smiles and is like, yeah, yeah, that's right. That's what's happening. And I do like this exchange, though. And this, among the many things, right, it, it kind of helps the Tully family feel very real. Yeah. And it's something that George is very good at, right, uh, throughout these books as he shows the many different ways that the families in Westeros embody Tolstoy's opening line of Anna Karenina, which is all happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. That's beautiful. So Catelyn asks after Rob, and they tell her he went with Theon Greyjoy into the Great Hall. She walks in on Theon, regaling the slaughter of the Whispering Wood, as Theon, that is a Theon thing to do, uh, bragging quite a bit, and she interrupts him and is like, where's Rob? And Theon's like, ah, he went to visit the Godswood. And she immediately thinks, it's what Ned would have done, and that Rob is his father's son as much as hers. And as she's thinking this, Catelyn again thinks, oh gods, Ned. And then it cuts off again, right? And her grief becomes, I, I, it, to me, it almost feels like an echo of the Promise Me Ned within the oh. same book, each of these ending with his name, but each of them being about grief, but now it's about someone else's loss. I love that. I, I, I really love that. That's really smart, that it's her own Promise Me Ned. Yeah, and, but now it's Ned <sighs> being gone and not Liana. And, <sighs> this is sad. Now he's just a ghost books. like them. God, Yeah. Wow, three times in one chapter. Suck it up. <laughs> Gotta make up make up for all these years. Oh my god. Catelyn finds Rob and several other lords, Mage Mormont, Gelbert Glover, the Great John, Rickard Carstark, and even Titus Blackwood, praying at the tree. Rob has his sword thrust into the earth and his gloved hands around the hilt. These are the ones who keep the old gods, she realized. She asked herself what gods she kept these days and could not find an answer. It would not do to disturb them at their prayers. The gods must have their due, even cruel gods who would take Ned from her and her lord father as well. So Catelyn waited. I love that because Catelyn waited. That's mm, such a great line right. to close that with, right? Because once uh, more she is waiting uh, for her men. And uh, it's so sad because it, it starts off with these are the ones who keep the old gods and uh, obviously she has no faith left in the gods. She she mm -hmm. thinks about the gods and th says, well, they must have their due, even ones who would take Ned from her and ones who would take her lord father. And it it's interesting because the northerners think the old gods have no power in the south. And here she thinks it was just the gods, any of them. Yeah, because, yeah, as you said, the old gods, they didn't protect Ned, maybe took him and the gods that she kept as a girl, Faith of the Seven, they're taking her father. And she's just really going through this trial of faith right now, right? As she's losing the men she loves. And it's interesting because technically a different faith will raise her from the dead. And oh. I, I wonder if that'll come back, right, in any way at all, right? That, that idea of, like, the gods failing her because that's very much it seems, in line with some of the internal dilemmas we're going to see in a couple of characters, such as, right, we're seeing it, we saw it in Davos, we're seeing it mm -hmm. 
we're probably going to see it in Melisandre and Aaron, so. And funny that you say that because then I think about Arya, right, who's learning ah, of the many-faced god. Yes, yes. And Catelyn is truly praying to the many-faced god now, She, in many yes. ways, as you just described. So that's an interesting thought. Mm. Interesting, interesting as we think about the future. Interesting. Oh, uh, yeah. Look under your chair. It's the future now. It's T-Wow. Oh, my God. Wow. The memories flood back to Catelyn as she stands in the godswood. Edmure breaking his arm, climbing an elm. Liza kissing Peter, her kissing Peter. No older than Sansa or Arya, right? Gross. She remembers his minty breath from the mint growing in the godswood. So there you go. That's where Peter gets his mint breath. He started it here at River Run, it seems. And their first kisses as young girls with him. Uh, she talks about how you know Liza had a little tongue action and she's like ew you let him put his tongue in your mouth he tried to put it in her mouth and she's like I don't like that and Liza's like I liked it (laughs) 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 why you gotta throw this in there I was like sad and maybe this is to break it up you know yeah yeah I think this is to break it up it's a cute gross memory and she even she looks out at the trees where her father once taught her how to ride a horse and Rob sheets his sword to meet her and she thinks suddenly has he ever even kissed a girl in Winterfell's Godswood? She thinks about young Jane Poole giving him moist-eyed glances and the serving girls and they all had crushes on him. He had to have kissed a girl, surely. He's ridden off to battle and war. She wipes her tears away angrily before he can see them and he announces to her, they must call a council. I actually don't know if Rob has kissed anyone. I mean, it, it makes sense to assume it, but I don't really know, especially because, yeah, it doesn't really come up in Kat's chapters until, obviously, later when he's like, Mom, I, I got married. Uh, it doesn't come up in Theon's memories, right? Or John's when they think about their times with Rob. Like, there's really no talks of like, oh yes, I'm used to talk about girls or whatever. And I'm sure Theod would have talked about that with Rob. And John yeah. hadn't kissed a girl until Egret, so I guess it's possible Rob hadn't either, because I mean he's very different from Robert, right? He's like, Mom, I had sex once and I married her, unlike Robert Brathy. He's <laughs> like, I had sex with everyone and I have kids everywhere. <laughs> I I do think that maybe he didn't because I don't know. I don't think Rob kissed anyone, especially with the way Alice Carstark talks about uh. him to John, right? In Adobada, in Dance, she kind of says that he was kind of a guarded prude, right? <laughs> and I mean, that's I, I think that's also due to how Ned raised them. They're just sheltered. They're young and sheltered. They're, they weren't allowed out much. Where was he going to go hang with girls? He might have ridden off and whatever. I mean, Theon, obviously was out there banging and slanging but yeah. again i mean also rob probably didn't didn't want to go into that foray knowing what kissing probably produces yeah i mean he might have been taught like kissing is how you get girls pregnant who knows and you will get pregnant and you will die <laughs> and yeah so i mean people develop at different rates like I, it sounds like you know Catelyn's saying, and we've heard other characters say that Rob was handsome, but he might have just been, as you like, as you said, sheltered. He could have been awkward, you know, like shy. He's still young, you know, and I couldn't get boys to kiss me when I was fourteen, so I get it. I couldn't either. Hey, I got married. Look at me; it can happen for everyone. Yeah, poor young Rob. He 
had a little bit of kissing. He had a little bit of sexing, and then he died. Like I said, you will get pregnant. Just you will like, die. just like a a praying mantis. Just like a praying mantis. Well, right now, he he's a praying wolf, oh. or was a praying wolf in the Godswood, and. Catalin interrupts Rob because he had just said, you know, I want to call a council. And she's like, uh, but your grandfather would like to see you. He's very sick. And Rob's like, yeah, I know. Edmure told me, but we have to talk about the issues in the South, mother. Renly Baratheon has claimed his brother's crown. And Catalin is like, oh, shit, this does kind of change some shit. We all thought it was going to be Stannis. <laughs> we did all think it was going to be Stannis. But good news, everyone. Stannis also is going to try to claim the crown. Hooray. You were also correct. Um, this is one For of the- one night only, three <laughs> kings. Uh, a lot. Like, at least five later. This is one of those accidents that causes Rob and Kat's stories to be a tragedy in the narrative, like, definition of the word, of, like, had they gotten word that Ned had declared for Stannis, right, or th- or had Stannis declared a little earlier and, like, I don't know, everyone had email and got it right away, right, or the <laughs> birds were faster or some shit, like, had it not been Renly first when they were making this decision, they might have been to Stannis instead of declaring independence and... Stannis could finally stop being so angsty all the time and be like less rude about Ned when they go talk to him. But anyways, timing was not their friend, but Well, and that's interesting that you say that because like that would have cleared up a lot of the issues in right. A Dance with Dragons, right? It actually would have. It would have cleared up a lot of issues in A Dance with Dragons. It would have cleared up Stannis's I think Issues maybe with Ned, <laughs> not or necessarily. His daughter. Yeah. Um. I don't know. He might still murder his daughter even then. Yeah, I mean, he might not have murdered his daughter, but if had that happened, so yeah, you know, he wouldn't. Know. He would have a little more self confidence. But no timing for him. No good timing there. They uh did not hitch their train, and why should they? Honestly, I mean, Stannis. What. As we talk about during A Dance with Dragons, what does Stannis have to offer? Anyways, I guess swords. Swords are everything. Swords are cash here. The War Council convenes in the Great Hall. It's across four long trestle tables that are arranged in a broken square, which feels symbolic. Mm -hmm. It must be a metaphor. Is this a metaphor, Eliana? Oh, (laughs) is it a metaphor? I don't know. I think so. I mean, it's a broken square. It's these tables that... uh, they don't quite fit. There are all these people and all these voices, just like in the Tyrion chapter uh, couple before, when you have the clansmen who are also just like this, right? The clansmen actually also give mm. voices to all of their people, and uh, Tywin and Tyrion sit and listen. And here, it is the same thing. It feels symbolic that it's a broken square of different people at each table, different types of people, but somehow they fit together in this council. And it makes me wonder if the last council... Maybe they'll be sitting in a completed square. Maybe it won't be broken. Oh. You know, in the last book. The ninth book. Or will it also be broken as a... Because of Northern Independence? Hmm. Mm, Maybe Sansa Mm. will sit in a chair that's just slightly away from the square. (laughs) (laughs) It is a triangle. (laughs) It's a a metaphor. (laughs) It's a dodecagon. (laughs) Oh my god. Well, Emir attends in Hoster's place, the Blackfish at his side, the 
the river lords lining the side tables, including the fugitive lords that fought against Lannisters. Carl Vance, a lord now that his father died beneath the Golden Tooth, sits with Mark Piper, and the dairy boy no older than Bran. Not the dairy girls, though, spelled differently as well. Jonas Bracken comes from Stonehenge, which is really confusing when you say it aloud. Sitting as far opposite Lord Blackwood as he can. <laughs> Typical. And the Northern Lords sit opposite them, Catelyn and Rob facing Edmure and the Blackfish. And the Northmen at the moment, at here, are fewer than the River Lords. And the Greyjohn is at Rob's left. And then Theon, then Galbert Glover, and Mage Mormont sit to Catelyn's right. I love this description of where the Lords are. Uh, Carl Vance and Mark Piper, of course, are BFFs with Edmure, right? We learn those are his buddies. We learn that in the Ned chapter where he's kind of ruling the throne for the day. Uh, he thinks about how, well, those are Edmure's friends. So that's his childhood buddies he grew up with, right? They're, uh, if Rob had friends, that's who he would have. <laughs> but he yeah. doesn't. Um, and the Dairy Boy just stands out so much in this. Uh, no older than Bran, right? Very mm. young. And it's so weird having him be able to pipe up and be like, yeah, I don't want to be ruled by those assholes. I think it gives you a great hint at what we might see someday in the end. And it's exciting to see Mage Mormont significant in this council, mm -hmm. speaking her mind so freely, as well as Catelyn, right? Yeah. Her voice, even though she's just a lady widow, you know, she's still very welcomed by these people and respected. And it does remind me of what we're going to see, Hope. I'm guessing someday when we get the Winds of Winter, we'll see how John Khan reacts around Arianne, standing on her own two feet in war councils with her own swords, as well as Nymeria in Cersei's councils in King's Landing as well. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. It's funny to think about. It. I'm like, John Khan's going to be so mad. Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> he's going to be so mad that this is happening. And I think Aegon. Because he's racist and sexist. Like, it's like yeah, a double banger. It's, he is. it's a goddamn banger. He is, though. And yeah, especially and then he's gonna be like that and projecting Ellie onto her. A lot's yep. gonna be going on there. It's gonna, it's a whole mess. Whereas uh, Aegon god. Aegon's gonna be like, oh my god, yes, step on me. <laughs> he's he. I think he's into that. Um, I'm telling you, the Adam yes. Feldman comment about Arianne seducing Aegon is the best comment on all of Reddit. What is uh, it discussing? It was a comment discussing how Arianne and Aegon will probably consummate their marriage. And just like the funniest, I have to find it for you. I will find it, but it's the funniest shit in the world where he basically just states like how Ariane will mastermind seduce Aegon because Aegon is just like a 14 year old boy who knows nothing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, what he's like 18, right? But still, it's not, yeah. I mean, it's not at that age, right? It's not hard. Yeah. Boys are interesting. They're an interesting specimen, as Ariane will probably show us. I mean, Aegon, Aegon, as we've seen, right? And and that's the thing, like, we've seen that he's a little... He, he's easy little to manipulate, right? Because Tyrion... hot-headed. Yeah, Tyrion does it quite easily. But anyways, um, we digress. <sighs> Lord Rickard Karstark is the last notable Northman here. He's looking gaunt, hollow-eyed, and lost in grief, which is in the air this chapter, right? Mm-hmm. There is no word right now of his third last eldest son who led the spears against Tywin on the Green Fork, and the arguing goes on late into the night, each lord having their right to speak, and none holding back. There's shouting, cursing, reasoning, jesting, bargaining. Is this a 
Girls Gone Canon episode. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Also, the slamming of tankards and threats. This could be. This could be us. It all punctuates the night, and Catelyn listens to it all. Oh, listening. That... This is us. I love that line so much. Catelyn listens to it all. This is a great council of the North and Riverlands. This will go down in the annals as a great council. I mean, think of all the councils we've had for secession alone, right? 101 AC, settling Jaehaerys' secession. 130, called by Alicent and leaving out Rhaenyra and company and like half the nation in that delegate kind of matter. Uh, And 136 was Aegon III's ascendancy. 233 was Aegon the Unlikely, Aegon V. Uh, And all these will have so many parallels and so many important kind of thoughts and themes that will run alongside the end game of Thrones moving forward. This council here in particular being called at River Run feels so big and foundational for the story moving forward. It does make me wonder how this could actually possibly have mirrored the council when Robert would have been chosen as representative uh-huh. as their king. Obviously we're missing the voice of the Eerie and it's not something that we have historically written down or canonically written down, but there had to have been a day where these lords got together and decided to tout Robert up. And River Run, as we're seeing, is unfortunately location, 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 uh, put in the middle of everything. So it's an obvious choice for a council to be called. And I do think that missing the Eerie's voice here in today's council in Catalan 11 is a huge plot point uh-huh. that, I mean should be filled by Sansa in the Endgame of Thrones, right? Like, this sticks out like a sore thumb that Liza's reluctance to lead the Eerie into war must be reconciled with sometime in the story. Mm-hmm. It all just feels so fitting. It's a king to lead a rebellion, this time for independence, also named for Robert. The Warden of the North was just murdered on a stage for the world to see, and now Rob has to free his sister from King's Landing, who's captured by the current evil king. Not to mention, the Lannisters are straight up openly aggravating and terrorizing the countryside with their watchdog Gregor Clegane once more out to menace society. (sighs) There's just so much here that is informing a lot of the rest of the books as far as uh, gathering parties together to, you know, unite against oppression, whether it be from ice zombies in the north or Cersei or whoever. Uh, similar tone, similar feeling and themes from so many different people with different lifestyles coming to fight and argue and have out their own peace. And something that strikes me the most is just like Robert, we don't get the reaction from Rob, right, on mm. being made king. Whether he wanted it or not, which is, I mean, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if he did at this point. This was, there, there was no saying no to this. This was a, you are now the king. I mean, the closest to a reaction being when the car start tension is at its peak and clash and he breaks. And he's like, I tried to do everything right. I promised I was going to do everything right. And I think this holds a lot of connotations for John's plot, right? We're going to see a lot of probably what Rob might have been thinking, but actually through John. Yeah, that's a great point. Um, they are, I mean, they are very similar, right? They were very close. And mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. As you said, they we don't know if Rob wanted it or not. Something maybe we can like discuss a bit more later, but as you said, there's no to crown him is to kill him. That's what we end up seeing. But also, you can't say no, right? You say no, it looks weak, especially after like a yeah. fucking all those speeches. You can't turn it yeah. down like that, and Mm-mm. and 
you just have to move forward and there's it almost feels to them right no chance and no choice but they think they have a chance for for a good while we we all thought that they had a chance i mean he even says to cattle in the last few chapters as he leads this stuff uh when we first get there right when we first get to the wood and he's making war plans with uncle brendan Catalan says, like, Rob, why are you doing this? You have men that can do this. You do not need to be leading this. And he's like, Mom, I have to. I have to do this. Who else is going to do this? Like, it's my job now to do this. Uh, And with Ned's death, I mean, there was never going to be a choice. Uh, He says that to her very clearly, as we're about to see. Uh, It's, again, painful. (laughs) It's sad because he's finishing what he has to. I mean, they killed his dad. It's a similar, and as you said, yes, they murdered his father. It's a similar predicament, not only that Ned was put in, but also Catelyn, right? When mm-hmm. her mother died early, that Rob's being thrust into this so early. Yes. Well, some of the people who will be a subject are not here at the moment, so it'll be interesting when they hear the news. For example, Roos had reformed the remnants of the host at the mouth of the causeway, and Sir Helmand Tollert and Walder Frey hold the twins still. Tywin's army was making for Harrenhal across the Trident, and two other kings now ruled in the realm. Exciting. Two kings, and no agreement. Some lords bannermen want to wage war on Harrenhal, meet Tywin in the field, while some, like Mark Piper, want to strike at Casterly Rock. Jason Malister points out that River Run sits on the Lannister supply lines, denying Tywin freshly reasoned provisions. Lord Blackwood says that they should finish the work they began in the Whispering Wood and write their own fanfiction no, uh, marching to Harrenhal <laughs> and bringing Roose Bolton's army with them. Everything Blackwood urged, Bracken of course opposed, and Bracken in turn suggests they join King Brenly's cause. Interesting. Bracken is such a wimp. <laughs> <laughs> he kills me. He kills me. He's such a turd in uh, Jamie's chapter. With That's him true. What a I do turd. find him amusing. Yeah. Rob, so like his father, had known to listen, but now he speaks for the first time. He declares, Renly is not the king. And everyone's like, whoa, you can't be pro-Joffrey, <laughs> Rob. Like, he killed your dad. And Rob's like, that makes Joffrey evil. It doesn't make Renly king. Joffrey is Robert's eldest trueborn son, so the throne is his by rights. Were he to die, his brother Tommen would still be next. Mark Piper insists Tommen is no less a Lannister, and Rob is troubled but allows it and says, If neither is king, how could Renly be king? He can't be king before Stannis. And so there's this interesting line right after that of where, as they're explaining it and Rob's explaining it, he's like, He's Robert's younger brother. Bran can't be Lord of Winterfell before me, and Renly can't be king before Lord Stannis, which is interesting, assuming that the show's ending was George's, which we've discussed before because it probably is because it was so out of left field that they had to shoehorn it in uh, because they foolishly didn't keep Brandon for a whole season and also didn't invest into his storyline, that's all. But whatever, whatever. Um, You know, the bad show. Anyways. Interesting that they would say this about Bran being lords in the same, like, sentence about being kings. Oh, yeah, that is a little a little spice of foreshadowing there. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Well, wait, Eliana, are you implying the last ten minutes of Game of Thrones was written by D&D? Just kidding. <laughs> That's a great, interesting bit of foreshadowing. We are going to have to pay attention to some more of that through Clash, because I know there's a good amount on my reread so far that I'm like, ah! 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 <laughs> Bran. Bran King. 
Mage Morma agrees Stannis has the better claim, but Mark Piper says Brenly is crowned in Highgarden and Storm's End support his claim. He thinks Dorne will follow suit if Winterfell and Riverrun support his claim, and if they can passionately convince House Arryn, then that would be six out of seven kingdoms. It's interesting that they think that Dorne will follow suit, because as we know, Dorne stays out of it, same as the Vale does. Um, yeah, to hook up with Lannisters-ish. Yeah, fast. I don't know why they... I mean, I guess I understand, right? Because they think that they're going to oppose the Lannisters, but interesting. Gotta break an egg to make an omelet. <laughs> well... <sighs> Yeah, earlier it's kind of funny that they're like, Tommen is no less a Lannister. I'm like, lol. Because, yeah, they <laughs> they don't know yet. And, uh, oh, how true it is. He is no less a Lannister than Joffrey. And the entire exchange, though, and Rob's outlook, which, speaking to earlier, is quite legalistic. of was like, well, I mean, mm-hmm. that makes Joffrey evil, but, like, that doesn't make Renly king. All right. And it shows how like Ned he is, right? Because throughout all of this, as they're all deciding, all right, so what do we do now that Renly's put forth a claim? A lot of these are very much similar arguments that Ned actually made for why he couldn't back Joffrey when he knew that Joffrey was illegitimate, right? Even when Peter was like, you know, it doesn't matter. Just just back them. Just back the Lannister children. He's like, I can't. They're bastards. Yeah. It, it, it's a... Uh... I appreciate, too, that he's like, no, because we have to be able to do it, like you said, the legalistic way. We have to literally do it the clean way. We have to do it the right way. Uh, Because what they are suggesting, I mean, going back to that idea of the council that chose King Robert, they are suggesting treason. You know, I'm, I'm sure all bets are off because the social contract was broken by part of the crown, but... As we're about to hear from the Great John, all bets are also off. Like, they broke their side. We're breaking our side. However, the crown still does have power at this point of the story, as we'll learn. Yeah, and I mean... Not for long. I mean, there's a reason why they keep throwing it in Sansa's face later. That They're like, oh, you got traitor's blood. Yeah, this is definitely interpreted as treason by a lot of people. Whatever. Yeah, I mean, is, like you said, you can't it. just send Google Hangouts to everyone. Like, hey, just so you know, Lannister's killed Ned. Peace. You know, like, they can spin it any way they want. Yeah. And it's actually harder <sighs> with the internet to... It turns out the internet doesn't make people more likely to believe true information. Anyways. Um, yeah. Yeah, there's a... <laughs> there's a lot. There's a lot going on here. And, yeah, everyone... I mean, honestly, again, everyone's committing treason. All the cool kids are doing it. And also... Also, not the cool kids of Stannis is doing it anyways. Yeah. <laughs> well. I do think Mark Piper here, he has somewhat of an okay idea, right? That like, hey, we'd have six out of seven kingdoms. We could win and then go from mm. there. Nobody says it. He doesn't yeah. say we could call a great council. He actually says we'd have their heads on pikes within the year. All of them. The queen, the boy king, the imp, the kingslayer, Sir Kevin, within a year. Which... That's a, that's a no. lot. That that's a, That's pretty... Yeah, but we all know that they wouldn't get everything they wanted out of that, right? They but wouldn't it's... have independence forever. They'd have someone that's a puppet king next in line in some illegitimate way. It's just kind of fucked you know, up that that's what he wants, is what I'm saying. It's a compromise. Yeah. I mean, like, to want the queen and the kids and all the other Lannisters. Oh, yeah, murdered, like, yeah. All of them, and, like, that's not what Ned stood for. Ned would have been like, Ned yeah. died so that those kids could live. 
That's vengeance. That's not justice. Exactly. I'm like, Mark Piper, pipe down. Ah, Unfortunately, this is one of the themes that does carry on in the books, right? That idea of just, let's just hang them all. Uh, That carries on specifically from Catelyn. (laughs) So she took (laughs) notes in the back of her subconscious, as we know. (laughs) Ah, Yeah. She's good at that. There is... There is something noticeable about Rob being troubled this chapter, right? Like, the weight of the world is totally on his shoulders, on this soon-to-be-boy king's shoulders himself. And it reminds me of John, the chapter right before this, John 9. While they worry about these threats to their person in the South, John is being told none of this fucking matters by a very different Mormont, right? By Mm. Lord Commander Mormont, the LC, Uh. Jor. He says to John, God save us, boy. You're not blind and you're not stupid. When dead men come hunting in the night, do you think it matters who sits the Iron Throne? So, of course, they don't know this. I'm not I'm not going to nag Catelyn and Rob because this is pretty glaring right now. The Riverlands is under attack and no one gives a shit, right? On each side, it's under attack and no one gives a shit except the North. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I do think this is important, though, because that is one of their faults and one of their blind spots. And for John, who is going to likely end up a king in the North in this story, he will give a fuck about dead men hunting in the night, right? Like he'll give a crap about the others, uh, but he's going to face some severe consequences probably for not taking care of the more diplomatic side of who takes the throne in the end. Mm. I'm sure there will be some other factors that pop up, but it's the exact opposite for him, right? Uh, Rob's diplomacy and, well, and the mistake of, you know, marrying to erase uh, your family's sad sins that, you know, mm-hmm. fuck with everyone's sadness. Marrying for that and doing the right thing in his mind compared to John doing the right thing. I mean, both of them will kill them in different ways. Yeah. And of course, there's this there's this idea of the, his dead dad, of dead Ned and of Rob. And he thinks... He wondered what Lord Eddard might have done if the deserter had been his brother Benjen instead of that ragged stranger. Would it have been any different? It must, surely, surely. And Rob would welcome him, for a certainty. He had to, or else it didn't bear thinking about. That line now gives me chills, especially in the face of the end game of Thrones, <coughs> right? That And Bran would welcome him, for a certainty. He had yeah. to, or else... Uh, I'm sure that he will be asking for some sort of, uh, you know, freedom slash guilty, non-guilty plea from Bran to go back to North of the Wall. But that really rings here that he just thought, you know, like, Rob would have to welcome me, right? Right? Well, no. Rob legalistically just told us that he probably wouldn't, couldn't. They have to do things the right way. Yeah, and we discussed this a bit in, in John's chapters, and I mean, Ned, it is complex, right? They think Ned would do the right thing, but the right thing isn't always the legal thing, mm-hmm. right? Hiding his sister's heir, hiding his sister's son who might be heir to the Seven Kingdoms, not necessarily legally the right thing. Giving the Lannister kids a chance to escape necessarily what someone called the right thing confessing to treason when you weren't really a traitor not really the right thing and ned was very merciful right that's what his desire to help the lannister kids escape was and i think you know 
if Rob seems to be the justice side of Ned, I think we could see Bran being very much a lot of that mercy, but not like necessarily like the kill people mercy. And yeah, we could see him potentially like pardoning John. I think you know part of it comes with that empathy, knowing what someone went through. Mm-hmm. And yeah, look under your chair. Oh my God, it's a pardon. <laughs> yeah. I just think that especially in the face of these lords, yeah. Rob couldn't, if he had oh, come south and no. he had kept going here, Rob couldn't pardon him, but had, I mean, had the kingship lasted. Maybe, maybe not, right? Because Rickard Karstark says, thinks that they should be treated a little differently, right? After yeah. he commits that great sin. So everyone thinks that there should be exceptions to them, it seems. Yeah. Not That's everyone, true too. but many of them do. That's true too. <laughs> the discussion continues. Their own discussion of why would they throw it all away on Stannis? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I mean, Sir Mark. I don't know. <laughs> what does he have asked Sir Mark? I'm throwing my hands up. <laughs> well, I'm waiting for a response. I'm waiting for an answer. <sighs> no, there is an answer, right? There is, Rob, there is an answer. Rob sounds eerily like Ned and he says, the right I've mm-hmm. never heard that one before. Edmure asks if he means for them to all declare for Stannis, all the North and Rivermen. And he responds, he prayed for the right answer, but it did not come. The Lannisters murdered Ned for a traitor, which was a lie. But if they fight Joffrey, they're traitors too. Stavrim Frey, unwanted, pipes up very weasily, and he's like, My father would urge caution and wait for these two kings to play their Game of Thrones and bend the knee to the victor. And then Stavern is really scandalous about it, and he's like, you know, Tywin would want a truce, and his son returns safely. Look, noble lords, let me go to Harrenhal and arrange terms and ransoms, and immediately no one is having this. Great John is like, you're a fucking craven. Mage is like, fuck off, that'll make us look weak if we beg for a truce, and Rickard's like, we can't give up the Kingslayer. And Catelyn tries to reason, though. She actually says, you know what? Let's all take a moment. Why not try to make a peace? And they all look at her. Uh, and she, of course, feels only Rob's eyes in this moment. And Rob looks at her and grimly says, They murdered my lord father, your husband. And he lays his long sword on the table. He says, This is the only peace I have for Lannisters. Yeah. And to, to be honest, both of them have good points, right? Like Yes. I really do think that both of these both of these sides make sense. Catelyn's side, of course, makes sense, right? As you were saying earlier, peace would save so many lives, not just theirs, not just the nobles, but the people within the realm, and they're mm-hmm. the ones who end up really suffering the most in this conflict, as we see in other chapters, and especially in Clash and, and in Feast, right? And... Rob's head hasn't been asked for yet, though, but but he has a point, right, that those, like, the cycle of pain hasn't reared its head yet, but it kind of is starting to, as Rob is put in the same position that his father was in the months before they were born, especially as he says, they murdered my lord father. It is um, coming back to what we were talking about at the top of the episode. It's a violation of that social contract. Where is the proof that there will be justice under this regime and that there... Yeah, I mean, they will be protected, and, and I'm sure this is something we talked about in our Northern Independence episode, so I, I see the points on both sides. I do, too, and 
had Joffrey not given the command to have Ned's yeah. head chopped off, held up in front of a crowd, you know, after making him proclaim himself a traitor? Fucker. Uh, it, had all that not happened, had it just been like an oopsie murder, like it was in the, had it happened in the streets with Jamie, right? Like, mm-hmm. had that happened, that would have been different. Yeah. Like, that would have been like, maybe we can make a piece. Uh, but. I mean, that is, that's a bone-chilling line. This is the only piece I have for Lannisters. It's past that, and I do think that's pretty apparent and well said. You know, like, it's well brought up here that uh, even how he looks at her, it's grim. It's like, I'm sorry, Mom. Yeah. He can't can't say no in front of these men, and she knows that. Uh, She knows that they won't listen to this. And I think that's what's difficult, right? Because as it's not even vengeance. What Rob is proposing here isn't vengeance. It's that they are unsafe knowing mm-hmm. that Ned was betrayed like that. I mean, Joffrey is an unstable king, as we know. Like, Tyrion calls it out. He's like, you've got a young King Ares here. All right, everyone. And I mean, as you said, had had Ned been able to be sent to the wall, I think peace was possible. And that's why Tywin and Cersei were like, what the fuck have you done? And <laughs> I'm, but also, as you said, like he can't just say no to going to war in front of his men. And I think that's, that I think is a wrong motivation. I understand all the other things. Mm-hmm. There are I'll many agree. reasons everyone wants to go to war and many of them are wrong, right? Many of them are wrong, yeah. especially when compared to Catelyn's idea for peace, because some of how we see it coming up, they want to go to war for vengeance, as, as people will say, but also pride. And pride is a stupid reason. Pride leads to a lot of people getting into these fights. It's a reason... Mm-hmm. As we see with with the people that end up at peace negotiation tables, as we discussed previously in other episodes, um, it doesn't always go as well as it can. Uh, so, anyway, yes, they're more they're more invested in protecting what their masculinity and pride versus the realities of people's lives. Anyways, mm-hmm. and well, and you know how some of these northern men are; they're just very emotional, yeah. Eliana. <laughs> like the no, great I job. know, I agree. I agree though, <laughs> especially with like they are. what happens in this chapter and like in this moment where the Grey John bellows his approval, that's emotional. And then they lead several other men in pounding their fists on the table and drawing swords. Yeah, I mean that's emotional. Oh, let's bring out our weapons. Okay. I just anyway. don't understand. He's gonna get like a whole chant going, a whole everyone in the crowd banging on the table, and then he's like, Oh, you're acting emotional, Catalan. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely kills me but Catalan waits for this uh this childish you know like we want our food antics to stop kills them she too. waits for them chill yeah it's later us. later uh, yeah that does actually kill them later she waits for them to quiet down and then Catalan straight up delivers the prototype of Alaria's speech in dorn that we hear later in the watcher Right? Like, this is the original begging for peace speech, and it's very sad. And Catalan says, Lord Eddard was your liege, but I shared his bed and bore his children. Do you think I love him any less than you? Her voice almost broke with her grief, but Catalan took a long breath and steadied herself. Rob, if that sword could bring him back, I should never let you sheath it until Ned stood at my side once more. But he's gone and a hundred whispering woods will not change that. Ned is gone, and Darren Hornwood, and Lord Karstark's valiant sons, and many other good men besides. 
and none of them will return to us. Must we have more deaths still? I love that beat for beat, George comes back to the speech with what he has in Alaria's speech. She says, Oberyn wanted vengeance for Elia. Now the three of you want vengeance for him. She goes on talking about this cycle, like you said, the cycle of pain happening. Is that how it goes? Round and round forever? I ask again, where does it end? I saw your father die. Here's his killer. Can I take a skull to bed with me to give me comfort in the night? Will it make me laugh, write me songs, care for me when I'm old and sick? This is a big moment for Catalan's chapter that she is able to take a moment, step back and say, is this what we truly want? And it is in the end because it means giving a better future to those that do survive. Yeah. She was the blueprint. Yeah, she was. Anyway. Um, I But yeah, I mean, like her, unlike Alaria, Catelyn's daughters are at risk. She doesn't know what's happened to her youngest at the moment, her youngest daughter. And she's she's thinking about the safety, yeah, of her two sons at home. And it's like, what about, yeah, my girls? And it comes back to the change that we see in Catelyn. She goes from the blueprint, then we get, like, a next draft of Catelyn later on after she dies. And you were talking about the broken man manifesting in Catelyn's chapters already. Even early on, we see those themes coming through. And a lot of the ways that the broken man ends up coming up in discussions is within the context, right, of how we see it with men and PTSD. Uh, because, of course, of how it's phrased and contextualized within A Feast for Crows and Septon Veribald's speech. It is within that, within a war, but Lady Stoneheart is that shadow looming over the entirety of the fourth book, and Lady Stoneheart is absolutely, like, the broken woman. Perhaps she could have settled for peace with just Ned's death, right? And, mm -hmm. but in less than two years, she loses her husband, her father, she's unsure if she'll ever reunite with her daughters, one of which she's like, maybe she's dead, she doesn't know what's happening to her youngest daughter, and thinks that her youngest sons are dead, one of which was her favorite child, and then she watches her eldest son killed in front of her. Like, what What sort of peace is left for her, right? What, what peace is there to hope for if she had lived? And, I mean, I get it. This is where mm -hmm. Rickard Karstark is at, but, like, and, and that's where she ends up. And it, it's interesting to to see that journey and that arc for Catelyn, that she starts here. It, it was definitely, like, a last call for peace for her. You know, like, this is... okay. If peace isn't going to be an option, now I know. Now I know how to inform myself moving forward. It's war, y'all. <laughs> Shit. She tries again. This isn't like her yeah. only try, right? Technically, uh, freeing J Jamie Lannister, while not mm -hmm. necessarily for peace, was, you know, a way to try and get something close to it and get her children back. And it is interesting that, like, even at her most skeptical of people, including the Kingslayer, mm -hmm. she still believes that the social contract on a whole has failed, right? The societal contracts have failed on a whole, but people inherently at their core are good. Like Jamie, she thinks, has something in him that he will, in her freeing him, he will take that and he will leverage it for her in this oath as a knight on his honor to her. She inherently still believes that good things in the system can be good. Yeah. I mean, she's also betting, as she says to him, she's like, I'm really betting on Tyrion, but yeah. maybe there's something in you too. All right. All right. Right. And, yeah. 
She's like, that could be something in me one day. Anyways, um, I'm sorry, Ned just died. I'm, I can't talk about this. We can't talk about Maybe this. Maybe it's Ned grief sex. The Great John says Catelyn is a woman. She does not understand these things. And Karstark <laughs> agrees she's of the gentle sex. She doesn't understand a man's need for vengeance. Interesting. She responds, give me Cersei Lannister and you would see how gentle a woman can be. Now we're hitting all the family. This is getting out of hand, Catelyn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You're the gentle sex. Men has need for vengeance. I'm just saying you should watch your fucking mouths because A Feast for Crows is just like a few books down the line, you guys. Yeah, Catelyn accomplishes what, you know, I'm sure that they wish that they could do. And I mean, not Catelyn, sorry. And anyways, yeah. It, <laughs> Lady it's Stoneheart, okay. girl boss. They don't have they don't want to have to watch their fucking mouths. They're going to be dead. But it, again, okay. Uh, Lady Stoneheart will just get vengeance for all of them. She's going to just carry all of them and get vengeance for everyone in this goddamn room. It's kind of like the moment where you tell your significant other, like, I bet you won't about something. <laughs> and they're like, oh, oh, you bet I won't, huh? I bet you bet I won't. Except Catelyn does it like from the undead <laughs> yeah oh oh you bet i won't be vengeful <sighs> and she doesn't say anything she just looks and she don't speak she just remembers you know she don't speak but she oh remembers. she remembers <sighs> well catalan does speak up here and elaborate she might not understand tactics or strategy you know she's but a young woman who knows little of the ways of war but she understands futility they fought to defend themselves and for ned's freedom they accomplished what they could. She'll mourn Ned, but she has to think of the living, her daughters stuck in the lion's den, and their Lannister hostages in return. If she can get the girls back, she would thank the gods and consider herself happy. And then she says the saddest thing. I want you safe, Rob, ruling at Winterfell from your father's seat. I want you to live your life, to kiss a girl and wed a woman and father a son. I want to write an end to this. I want to go home, my lords, and weep for my husband. <laughs> yeah, there's that reprise of what we talked about last chapter, um, of that wanting, and it's going to come up again a lot in Catelyn's chapters. But most of all, that I want to write an end to this. And I'm like, ah, oh, yes, first book, George, so optimistic. <laughs> In just two books. <laughs> right, an end to this. Anyways, um, by the time that Catelyn finishes speaking, the hall is very quiet. And finally, Brynden speaks and says that peace is sweet, but not on these terms. So the full quote of what Brynden says, he says, It is no good hammering your sword into a plowshare if you must forge it again on the morrow. Simple enough uh, analogy. But it's actually really similar to Isaiah 2.4 in the book of Isaiah. He shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. Huh. So the, the book of Isaiah is known for its more utopic view of the world, right? With no oppression or war. And it, it brings up two specific problems here, which are actually often argued against Northern independence. How to convert capital goods into war material, and how to then use political constituencies and moral ethical willpower to get people to work toward a peace. So the he in Isaiah's passage, of course, refers to God. But in Brynden's words, there's no point putting down your sword when the enemy will be at your gate the next day oppressing you once more. Uh, 
for the Riverlands, for the North, for the Blackfish, the he here is not God. The he is Rob as a symbol of hope at living a great life without tyrannical oppression from the throne. So for them, Rob's kind of their God, you know, in comparison here. And I think that makes sense within some of the metaphors that George has been working with in this book, right? Of mm-hmm. Especially that we see come out more explicitly in Daenerys' chapters, especially in Storm, of when you have this much power, when you're a king or a queen, to what extent are you a god? But not obviously, like, not all the time, right? But I mean, it's something that happens within Euron's and also the loneliness that comes with godhood and kingship. <laughs> so, makes, makes sense. Well, Karstark asks then if we are going to just settle for peace, then what did his sons, Eddard and Torin, die for? If he's to return with nothing but their bones... And Lord Bracken's like, what about my fields and my small folk that are smoking ruin? And Lord Blackwood even agrees, which is like, wow. Um, But it does remind them that if the stag prevails against the lion, Renly may then bring justice down upon them as well. This desire to go to war and not settle for peace, especially within the context of Karsark's words and how they're both saying we have to do something, coming back to that pride and using the deaths of their family to justify it. And that was on the battlefield, right? Not not something that was like an unjust trial or something. It, it reminds me again of that line that we keep bringing up because uh, our good friend, poor Quentin, your especially good friend, poor Quentin, uh, keeps bringing up of men's lives have meaning, not their deaths. And their deaths don't have to mean this, right? They, it doesn't have mm-hmm. an inherent meaning here they didn't necessarily die for something i know we argue the opposite in a lot of other episodes so i'm large i contain multitudes and (laughs) i'm different all the time different rivers different me hello (laughs) but i mean i do have to say though that quote does work perfectly here because yeah i mean the biggest the biggest part of this and the biggest argument of this is that if they lead right now against the lannisters will they stop generations future generations of North children and River children alike from living under an oppressed rule would would mm-hmm. fighting, even losing their lives in this fight right now, even just to push that slider just a little bit farther to freedom, would that be worth it? And the answer that they come upon, that they learn and they unfortunately, their demise comes to is that yes, yes, it is worth it. Uh, and it's obviously a job that has to be finished still in our story but uh they fight for that because of that uh and i think sansa's plot in a clash of kings you know is really visceral when you think about that and you think about the scars she has from being just beat in the throne room yeah it's it's pretty visceral to think about those scars and like think that you know while bran and rickon were running afraid for their lives also and Bran going north of the wall into, you know, ice zombie territory and Sansa getting beat by the throne, that they are still surviving and they're still carrying on that flame and hopefully that spark of northern independence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're going to free a lot of beautiful kids, Eliana. I mean, I'm that's the hope. I don't know. That's the hope every time, right? Yes. And... Before we get to the treat that you all are are in for, you're in for a fun treat. Mark Piper, and he finally gets with it. He straightens up and flies right. 
Mark Piper declares, whatever we decide, I'll never call a Lannister my king. And the little dairy boy even chimes in, agreeing. Uh, which felt, that felt significant, right? That felt kind of significant that these two chimed in, like, whatever, as long as there's no Lannister king we're in. <laughs> yeah. And so, you know, that that brings us to the thing. They're like, all right, well, if it's not going to be a Lannister, and if you won't let us pledge to Renly, then this is a choice that we've made. And, and they kind of, like, talk themselves into it. They're like, well, clearly none, neither of these choices are the right one. So they make their own path. Yes. And here is the path that they create. Again, the shouting began. Catelyn sat despairing. She'd come so close, she thought. They'd almost listened. Almost. But the moment was gone. There would be no peace, no chance to heal, no safety. She looked at her son watched him as he listened to the Lord's debate, frowning, troubled, yet wedded to his war. He had pledged himself to marry a daughter of Walder Frey, but she saw his true bride plain before her now, the sword he had laid on the table. Catelyn was thinking of her girls, wondering if she would ever see them again. When the Grey John lurched to his feet, My lords, he shouted, his voice booming off the rafters. Here is what I say to these two kings. Bleh. He spat. Renly Baratheon is nothing to me, nor Stannis neither. Why should they rule over me and mine from some flowery seat in Highgarden or Dawn? What do they know of the wall or the wolfswood, or the barrows of the first men? If their gods are wrong, the others take the Lannisters too. I've had a belly full of them. He reached back over his shoulder and drew his immense two-handed greatsword. Why shouldn't we rule ourselves again? It was the dragons we married, and the dragons are all dead. He pointed at Rob with the blade. There sits the only king I mean to bow my knee to, my lords. He thundered. The king in the north. And he knelt and laid his sword at her son's feet. I'll have peace on those terms, Lord Karstark said. They can keep their red castle and their iron chair as well. He eased his longsword from its scabbard. The king in the north, he said, kneeling beside the great John. Mage Mormont stood. The King of Winter, she declared, and laid her spiked mace beside the swords. And the river lords were rising too, Blackwood and Bracken and Malister, houses who had never been ruled from Winterfell. Yet Catelyn watched them rise and draw their blades, bending their knees and shouting the old words that had not been heard in the realm for more than 300 years. Since Aegon the Dragon had come to make the Seven Kingdoms one, yet now we're heard again, ringing from the timbers of her father's hall. We did it. Our first king in the north. We did it. Amazing. And a huge thank you to our friends and patrons who contributed to this episode, including Jimmy, Lowe, Pete, 
Yogi, Rowan, Amy, Warren, and Alex. Uh, couldn't have done it without you all. So thank you for submitting this. Yes, it was exciting. Uh, Chloe put together this big project. and it, yeah. This was great. And oh my god, some of these voices were hysterical. But also, it just wouldn't feel right having a King in the North That's episode true. with no King in the North chanting at the end. So it felt hollow. It felt empty. And I wanted to feel a part of the hall with you all. Like we were there in the great hall witnessing, holy shit, this council this amazing great council, uh, we're witnessing history with Catalan here. Absolutely. This is, again, that Rubicon moment. I mean, that did end up becoming history. Yeah, there's no going back now. There's no yeah. going back now. This is it. You all just signed your deaths. They kind of <laughs> did. That is what happened. Yeah. Yeah. But it makes for a great story. So... And who has I a better story say, than... Oh my god. Then Rob's sword. I don't know. I love. I love the line uh, that he had pledged himself to marry a daughter of Walder Frey, but she saw his true bride plain before her. Now the sword he had laid on the table, because of course of the family words of the house Tolly words, Rob has come to embody duty the mm-hmm. most. And I, I, I also love that line. Like it stood out because that sort of idea comes up. A lot in the other, and some of the other characters, right? Like that for Arya Hota, his wife. He he weds mm-hmm. his axe. Yes, John's Asha. yeah Asha and and her axe as well. And then John's marriage to his duty, and also that's what they say, right? I, if I'm not mistaken, the Unsullied are described a little like that too. Yes. So their duty to their sword and their spears. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely stood out this time on reread. And of course, earlier on when he, look, this is going to get a little phallic, but when he had his sword thrust into the ground, Mm -hmm. uh, obviously that's a very Ned pose, right? We've seen Ned do that in the Godswood already in the story. But something about that whole innocence, innocence lost kind of thing going on and how, wow, did Rob never even kiss or bang or do anything fun in his life? Didn't he even smoke one joint? (laughs) No, He didn't. That feels, it feels prominent though here that that like just the imagery of the sword thrust into the ground. It, it feels yeah. very prominent. They give brand drugs before they give any to Rob. Damn, that's true. If you think about wow. it. Wow. How does it feel knowing your little brother did more acid than you growing Damn. up, Rob? <laughs> that is actually literally what happens. Um, <laughs> that's literally it. what happens. Well, yeah, it feels backwards, right? You're not supposed to be king before you've ever kissed someone. Yeah. Not at all. Not at all. And I mean, he's a boy king up against another boy king who, yeah. I mean, I prefer this one. Oh, for, for sure. sure. For sure. We like this one. <sighs> Unfortunately, you know, he it really sucks that they, they die. both die. So there's that. But uh, well, no one gets out alive in the Game of Thrones. My God. I do think it's interesting as they're discussing who they would kneel to right who they will accept as a king they won't accept the lannisters because as you've pointed out the lannisters have been completely oppressive like i don't know about renly it seems like he's violating some laws and also right he's another southern southern king they don't know much or anything about him they knew robert but they don't know renly and the phrasing of king in the north right they're not saying the northern king or the king of the north right you might expected to say king of the north because people they'll say king of the seven kingdoms right the the preposition is of 
But that it's the king in the north speaks to how much they want someone who understands their values and their culture. And that it's the king in the north. But interestingly, he gets crowned not in the north. And he never gets to go back. Back, yeah. That also feels so prominent that he... King in the north that isn't in the north. It's very ironic. And and I think it... I mean, obviously it cuts against him on a political level later on when he loses Winterfell. They're like, oh, how are you going to be the king in the north when you don't have a seat in the north? But And it does feel especially significant as we go into the Winds of Winter with the Stormlands being taken, right? Mm. And that, that big symbol of legitimacy yes. for the Lannisters, they're now losing their symbol of Baratheon legitimacy. Yeah. But here here especially, so- what, the fact that the Northmen picked this, right, King in the North, and granted, of course, that was the title that they used before, but it just feels very intimate that they would pick that and yeah. meaningful for what they want for their... For their land yeah and expanding you know the people's power yeah all right well now that we've had this really cheerful actually it ends on a it ends on a happy note except for the part where we talk about yeah, them dying i mean triumph except yeah except for we think well, about the future but we can't not talk about it's a reread yes this is a reread and and, and it is like uh, I really do appreciate the storytelling bits that George ends both this, the penultimate chapter of the entire book, and the next chapter similarly, right? Danny's end, uh, the music mm, filling the night. Yes. This is the music filling the night for the start, yes. for the magical counterparts with Grey Wind at Rob's side, uh, just as Danny is awakened in the east and she just wakes up and wakes up the dragons. I mean, it's such a magical. Both of these moments are just such intense, super suspenseful moments that when you get there, it is definitely a roller coaster, definitely at the top of the roller coaster, and you finally get to have a little relief, right? Like something okay happened in the face of all this grief and all this loss, and it really does show that even in George's storytelling, only death can pay for life. That's such a great point, and that tying of these really audible moments tying it together yeah i mean you can hear obviously you're hearing the echo from our great john but you can feel like the great john echoing in the hall with his great blah 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 blah, blah. you can just feel it you can yeah. you, you feel like you're there and you well up with emotion and you're like yeah the king of the north oh my god he's gonna die uh, and then it's a lot yeah. emotionally one day we can get to the emotional scene of and for the first night and for the first time, what is it? In centuries, the night was alive with the sound of, with the song of dragons. Sound of dragons? I don't know. Singing the music. Yeah, with the music of dragons, and then we can do the little dragon voices like. <laughs> All right, everyone, get ready to email us your best dragon noises. <laughs> There's going to be an audition. Who? Which? Who will be which dragon? <laughs> I'll be Viserys. You'll be Dragon. No. <laughs> well. Uh, this has been quite a book. Finishing up Catalan in a Game of Thrones. We're cruising through. We've got seven chapters in Clash to get Damn. through, so buckle up. Um, they get a little crazier. We get some good diplomatic, political stuff coming yes. up next book, and uh, some failures, so some some success. I think it's going to be a good book. The Catalan? I think it's going to be our the year. Clash, Catelyn, the Catalan Clash chapters, the Clashalan chapters are very meaty. And we've emphasized this over yeah. and over, but they they hold the book together. 
yeah, they are the glue that holds it together. And I think we were kind of blessed with some simple chapters here. Not simple, but, you know, lighter. Agot. A Game of Thrones is definitely nice and easy to get you in before a Clash of Kings when it all ramps up. So we'll get to some juicy, meaty bits starting next week. And we can't wait to bring it to you. Yeah, because they're setting up the plot. They use the... The plot. The plot. <laughs> now that we've wrapped up this book, if you have a got any thoughts or opinions that you would like to send to us, you can find us on social media at Girls Gone Canon, C A N O N, on Twitter, or you can send us an email at girlsgonecanon at gmail.com. Yes, get in your mood boards for your animal oh, yeah. for Eliana's happiness. For blueberry. <laughs> we loved the blueberry mood board and we did post it so go check it out as always if you're not subscribed already make sure you're subscribed so you can tune in whenever we release new episodes and it would make us happy give us a smile you can check us out over on spotify on google play on apple podcasts on audible on amazon on iHeartRadio, on pandora oh. on stitcher on Acast. you name it we're there check it out keep forgetting to drop iHeartRadio when I do those. I didn't even say Google Plus, okay? <laughs> well, another place that you can find us is on Patreon. And again, patrons $5 and up get bonus episodes every month. This month is a His Dark Materials themed episode. We are going to be talking about the short story The Collectors. Yes, and of course, if you come on over to Discord and you're in the Thunder tier and above, the $10 tier and above, You will have a blast. You'll get to hang out, do some brunch happy hour, have some drinks, not alcoholic, alcoholic snacks, either, whichever you like, and uh, water. I water a lot. Yeah, I was on a water one last time, so, you know, it just depends. Come hang out with us. We'll do our next one on June 26th. Yes. As always, I have been one of your hosts, Chloe. And I have been another one of your hosts, Eliana. And we have been... See you next book. Your kings in the north. Okay. <laughs> Goodbye. Oh, what? Oh my god, what? what? Maybe, maybe the kings in the north were just the friends we made along the way. I mean, maybe, maybe they were, and then they all died. What? Goodbye. <laughs> <laughs>